name's Eileen Townsend, and I'm the editor of the Northern Logger and Timber Processor, a trade magazine for the forest products industry that's based out of the Adirondack Mountains in New York State. So this last year has been one of a lot of ups and downs when it comes to international trade of wood products. 2018 brought us a lot of uncertainty, and as Americans in the forest products industry uh, know very well, we watched our trade relationships shift dramatically with two major trading partners, China and Canada. So this month on the podcast, we're going to dive into the quote-unquote trade war with China and the ongoing softwood dispute with Canada. As always, we've sought different voices in the industry to make sense of what we've all been hearing on the news and from our neighbors. Like our member base, some of our experts on this episode believe that fairly orchestrated free trade helps not hurts our industry, while others believe that increased tariffs and trade restrictions strengthen the American economy. And some of our guests work hard to present without a bias. So we appreciate hearing from all these voices. First off, we heard from Mike Snow at the American Hardwood Export Council. Mike gave us context on China and our, our relations with China over the course of the last year. Of course, we saw um, July, August, September, we saw you know, you know, significant drops from the previous years. We did see a bit of a bounce back, you know, a pretty strong bounce back in October. And I think a big part of that was trying to get things in there before the original January 1st date when it was supposed to go back up. It'll be really interesting to see what November and ultimately December are, but uh, unfortunately we should have Novembers now, but with the government shutdown, the Ag Department website that tracks the shipments is also shut down. So we can't act. So we can't access that. We can't access that data right now. A little bit below 2000, you know, year on year, we're a little bit below 2017, um, but actually higher than 2016, which was the second leading, you know, the second biggest year ever for exports to China. So I mean, in a couple a couple ways you look at it, you know, 2000 as bad as the end of the year has been, um, it looks like we're st- it's still going to be the second best year ever, to you know, to China. That, that being said, you know, there are some, some, you know, there are some clouds on the horizon. Um, you know, the first, the, and, and the reason for that is the first half of the year was really strong. And we were on, you know, record-breaking pace through about June. Um, and then when the trade, stock, trade talks started to heat up and then the, the tariffs came along, it, you know, it just absolutely collapsed. I mean, a lot of people lost a lot of money in demurrage and, and having to reship and everything else. Um, but I think on that, it's important to keep in mind that um, the Chinese didn't change their regulations. Um, they decided to enforce the regulations, <laughs> which is a different, which which is a you know a kind of a different story. I mean, a lot of these shippers, to be perfectly honest, um, they knew that they were pushing the envelope with these you know this this Hong Kong pass through, and a lot of them have been doing it and getting away with it, and you know the importers have been doing it, and they've been just as you know just as guilty. Um, so, I mean, a lot of them, you know, they knew they were playing with fire there. Dana Cole from the Hardwood Federation provided information on the slowdown of the Chinese trade and uh, thought a little bit about what the future could hold. The current situation is that um, for the G8 summit, the, the U.S. and China decided to go into negotiations and kind of put a halt to Um, any further increases on tariffs from either side until March 1st. 
Um, again, there was a window opened up, so I think some shipments went out, but I think there's still so much uncertainty in the market that nothing has really recovered to to a what the industry would consider a positive level. Um, currently, as of today, um, I think they're in their the, the the U.S. government and the Chinese government are are currently today uh, in the process of having trade negotiations to determine how to kind of move beyond this dispute. Um, you know, everything's been very positive coming out of that. Uh, it's very hard to tell uh, what will happen. Um, and then, you know, I would say even after, you know, even if um, something gets settled and an agreement is reached, you know, number one, it would take a little while for normalized trade relations to resume. And number two, I think that it's going to be interesting to look and see um, what happens in light of, you know, the Chinese economy certainly slowing down. So, you know, how much of this, it's really hard to tell how much of this current situation is due to the tariff situation and how much is due to the fact that you know, the Chinese economy was slowing down, their middle class is being squeezed, um, they're not building as much as, as they were, they're not demanding as much furniture, um, so they're not demanding as much American hardwood, particularly red oak. So I think there were a couple of things going on at, at the time that, that impacted the decline in trade to, to China. Um, so solving the trade dispute will be one piece of the puzzle. Um, how the Chinese economy responds to that will be another piece. John Bartow, executive director of the Empire State Forest Products Association, gave the trade organization's perspective on value-added lumber versus log export. I think the biggest thing that we've had is uncertainty in the marketplace. And that's the thing that our members are most after. It's like, can you get to a point where we have predictability and certainty as to what's going to play? Um, it's interesting, you know, when we see tariff numbers in the single digits, there's not a lot of ants, you know, nobody gets particularly antsy about it. Um, but we start seeing them go into the double digits. It starts looking like that could have a significant impact on our export marketability. Um, so, so they're anxious to see what will those numbers be. You know, if they're in the, you know, less than 5%, some folks are saying, eh, that's probably doable. We can probably live with that. If they're in the high teens or 20 percentiles, that, you know, starts to become very problematic. And, again, it's species-driven based on value, you know, obviously. And then it also differs between um, furniture-grade kiln-dried lumber being shipped as opposed to whole logs being shipped. Um, what we have seen both to Canada and to Asia is significant well the canadian side as i said all the softwood is pretty much going in log form hardwood has been going um, from new york and some of the northeast states again to the quebec and ontario mills um, there's significant volumes of logs whole logs going as opposed to uh, kill dry dimensional number so those are important um, but, but in both those instances, so now, now we go to Asia, and what we've seen over the last five to seven years is a significant shift from kiln-dried dimensional lumber 
to whole logs, which has been an indicator of China's ability to improve their sawmilling and kiln drying technologies. So that was a big growing marketplace. We had a lot of log brokers uh, and, and, and sawmills get into the log uh, export arena. Um, so it's been, it's been an interesting position as a trade association to be in. Um, on the one hand, that you're anxious to want to see, you know, obviously export markets are good markets. You know, they're 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 very robust. They're very um, the, the prices have been very good over the last couple of years. Um, but there's some of this tension between should we be shipping raw logs versus, you know, the value added furniture grade kiln dried lumber. You know, and what's going to what's the long term perspective on that? And we have. We have um, kind of stayed neutral in that position. Um, I would say our membership is very uh, free market, uh, fair trade oriented, and they'll, they want to be able to provide to their clients the product that they want. If they want whole logs, they'll ship them whole logs. If they want kiln-dried dimensional lumber, they'll ship them kiln-dried dimensional lumber. Although China makes up nearly a quarter of the export market, Canada is the log and lumber industry's next biggest partner. Peter Triandafilo, known to many just as Peter T, explained how the last few decades led to this moment in the U.S.-Canada trade. It was interesting. I mean, there were a lot of things that all came together, really, on the, on the lumber side. I mean, first of all, you had a recovering housing market, so they created more demand. There was less supply that could come out of Canada because all of that, you know, in the, in the last big housing boom, British Columbia, you know, it was just this huge player that could send, ship all kinds of lumber into the United States. But, you know, they've lost so much of their resource due to that, um, that beetle infestation, kind of like our budworm here in the Northeast. So there was a little bit less supply. There was transportation, rail car and trucking issues in Canada, so they couldn't move wood. And there was also transportation issues in the U.S. There were a bunch of mills in the south that had shut down during the last housing crisis, and it took time for a lot of them to come back online because they had been really – some of them had been just disassembled. So there was this you know, sudden supply shock. You know, all of a sudden, people wanted more wood. And then you know, the U.S. put tariffs on Canadian wood, you know, regardless of how one feels about that either way. That you know, I mean, that's just an increased cost, so that raised things. So there was this sudden, like, a confluence of factors that made for a whole bunch of demand and not supply to fill it. Right, so prices went through the roof because everybody wanted lumber, and it was hard to get. And you know, we were actually importing lumber from Russia and other places, you know, from a very long way away. But of course, you know, the market responds, right? <laughs> prices are really good. Everybody increases production. All kinds of wood hits the the market, and there's all kinds of studies that show that markets almost always over-respond to that, these kinds of signals because the signals are temporary in nature. So, yeah, it, it's, it's very common. So a whole bunch of production came online and would hit the market, and the demand really wasn't there. You know, the transportation issues sorted themselves out, and wood got moving. And so, you know, there was more supply now than really there was – I mean, there was plenty of demand, but, you know, a whole bunch of supply meant that prices were going to come down. So it was a bigger swing than usual, but – you know, I mean, not entirely surprising. We were coming out of a long, you know, a historic housing crisis that was coming back to something a little bit more normal. And um, it took a while for supply to catch up with that demand. Everybody, everybody knew it was coming, but nobody wanted to take a bet and start increasing demand when the prices were awful. So 
You know, there was just that lag. All of a sudden, it's like, yeah, I need to buy a whole lot more wood. Oh, it's not there. I got to pay more money. You know, um, so that's that's kind of what caused it. And and prices for for the for the for the raw material for the trees, as I said, followed suit, but not to the same big kind of swing because wood doesn't tend to do that. It makes sense that our industry is feeling many ways about this unsure time. A lot of people say that they have cautious optimism about the future. Others say that, you know, they think that people are still thinking too optimistically and that the bottom is going to fall out. It's, it's interesting to hear all of these different opinions. Despite the upheaval this year, mill owner Jason Brochu believes in the U.S. position on softwood trade with Canada. Um, yeah, I mean, we have, uh, we saw a couple different species in Maine, but the, 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 our two larger mills are, are spruce and fir dimensional lumber. And that's, well, actually, and eastern white pine, and those are all part of the trade litigation. Um, you know, so the Commerce Department is, has done an investigation, and, and now they're continuing an investigation, and they've attached um, duties, some individual company duties, and, and some, you know, just kind of average duties that everybody gets. Um, and those are both countervailing and anti-dumping duties. And so importers from Canada are paying those duties to get to ship their lumber into the United States. Um, you know, the last, you know, those have been in place for, for quite a while now. And there's been, um, you know, different, different uh, levels of either negotiation or duties for the last 30 plus years. You know, it's been going on since the 80s. Um, in the last couple of years, what, what's happened in the U.S., and we're an example of that, is we've seen, you know, dramatic growth in the industry, um, you know, which was one of the, which is one of the kind of proving points on, the, on what the U.S. industry is capable of when we have a level playing field. Um, and, the, you know, the big argument in the trade case is that it's not a level playing field due to subsidies. Therefore, some kind of some kind of duties are necessary. So, you know, in the last couple of years the, in the United States, the production um, has has increased dramatically. And with current announcements, especially in the South, um, there's there's more dramatic increases coming. Um, you know, you're talking billions and billions of board feet here in Maine. Um, we you know, our company is is increasing our capacity by 50 percent. We're building a new mill. You know, we're we're investing about twenty million dollars into our company to add production and expand production. Um, a lot of which is due to the confidence that we have going forward, and that you know, we're we're our rights are protected, and you know, the U.S. trade laws are being enforced. Nicholas Fontaine is a border mill owner and described the two perspectives that he must hold as somebody who sees things from both sides of the border. This whole conflict is mainly driven by, you know, the different systems that take place in Canada versus United States, where logs in the United States are uh, mainly coming from private land sources, and in Canada it's coming from crown land sources. And I believe the biggest issue is to is on the West Coast in British Columbia, where the trees are quite different than here and the stumpage is a different system and the U.S. coalition uh, believe it's uh, an unfair advantage and I'm not going to take a position whether it is or not, but that's basically where it's coming from. When you get here uh, on the border of uh, Quebec and Vermont, New Hampshire and, and Maine, you have mills that are on either side of the border, whether they are in the United States or in Canada, 
and those mills they uh, they buy logs from private land because there's uh, there's no not a lot of crown land in, in Quebec provinces if you're uh, on the southern part of the St. Lawrence River. So those mills, whether they are in the United States or in Canada, they buy logs on private land from both sides of the border, and that my at this stage my understanding is that this is a level playing field because the allegation of the um, coalition is that the subsidy is coming from low stumpage and in our case it doesn't apply whether it's any Quebec border mills or any U.S. mills or any uh, any of our own mills and now now we have to pay if you're on the Canadian side you have to pay 20 percent tax when you get your lumber back in the United States and that's to the detriment of the U.S. landowners, the U.S. logging contractor, the U.S. truckers, because we can't pay as much for our logs in the United States as we would be able to if we wouldn't pay the 20% tariffs. Mike Snow, who we heard from at the beginning of this segment, listed potential markets for mills and exporters, including the United States. Well, I, again, a lot of you know s- small ones. That's the problem. Is there's nothing anywhere near the kind of volume. Uh, you know, that can make up anywhere near the kind of volume. I mean, you know, the EU has been pretty consistent. You know, the UK in particular has been has been fairly consistent. We're seeing a little bit of growth in places like China. I mean, in places like China and places like Spain. Um, we're seeing, you know, the Middle East coming back, you know, relatively strongly. Um, but again, kind of smallish numbers. We're finally, I think, beginning to see a little bit of movement in India. Um, but again, that's going to be a long-term proposition. I mean, we're not going to, India is not going to suddenly pick up big volumes overnight. Um, but again, they're running into some of the same issues as, as China, that their entire wood processing industry in India has always been based on, you know, bringing in imported logs from, you know, Myanmar and from, um, you know, elsewhere in Southeast Asia and from Africa and manufacturing them there, and they can't get those logs anymore. So they're starting to, you know, they're starting to realize that, you know, maybe bringing in the kiln-dried lumber is going to be in our interest. And, um, you know, but again, it tends to be a lot of local manufacturing. You know, India is not producing a big re-export, you know, for manufacturing, for, you know, actually physical manufacturing. Um, they're not putting their, you know, their, their money behind that. The infrastructure is horrible. The rail system is horrible. Their ports are third world. So, I mean, it's not going to be like a China situation where India is going to suddenly become a big manufacturer and exporter of furniture or flooring. But there's a lot of small-scale, you know, production for local use. And local use in India you know, is a lot of people. So I think I... So, so I think there's, you know, I think there is some potentials there, but again, it's a, um, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult market because they're not used to bringing in lumber. It's very, very price sensitive. Um, the red tape can be, you know, just absolutely mind-boggling on what you need to do to get to get things in there. Um, so it's not gonna, there's not gonna be an easy switch. You know, hey, well, China's slowing down. Okay, here comes India. Um, it's, it's, it's not gonna work like that. So there's and and there's really you know nobody else even you know consistent good markets for the U.S. I mean Vietnam of course is the one you know after China it's the next one and Vietnam is still growing but there's a limit to how much you know how much additional you know um, uh, timber Vietnam can absorb. But on the on the positive side you know Vietnam has taken over a lot of the you know the re-export furniture industry in particular from China. 
um, you know, whereas China now is producing much, producing much more for domestic consumption, and a lot of the re-export stuff now we're seeing more and more of it out of out of Vietnam. Um, but on the positive side, what we're seeing in Vietnam now is we're finally starting to see um, a lot more domestic development. You know, hotels, Western-style office buildings, you know, Western-style you know apartment complexes. Um, shopping center, that sort of thing that, that tend to be big users of, of imported wood are starting to come online. So we're starting to see, you know, Vietnam become a consumption market and, and not just a re-export market. It's, it's kind of the same thing we saw, you know, 15, 18 years ago to China. If, if China continues to slide, you know, who's going to pick up the slack? And I think the answer, there really is only one country that can possibly pick up the slack, and that's the U.S., and it's also the one country where we're doing absolutely no promotion whatsoever for wood. So, I mean, I think we're missing such a huge opportunity on things like, um, you know, like CLT on, on, you know, using more and more wood for construction. I mean, the science is clear. The architects are excited about it. It's, you know, how do you break through the, you know, the PR and marketing juggernaut of the steel and concrete industries. Jameson French of Northland Forest Products explained what he's been seeing from where where he stands. Um, you know, the world, the general slowing, um, and is you know, with the unknown, is is the U.S. market also slowing? Um, you know, it, certainly people in the industry would say it's quiet. Um, so the, thus, all of that. If you are an export buyer, even in a country that's doing really well, like say Germany or Scandinavia or whatever, where there's stable, you know, consumption, um, you're going to say like, why would I buy a lot of wood today if you know the price may be lower tomorrow? Or you know, so so that's that's you know just like with the volatility in the stock market, all of these factors have created you know economic volatility, which um, has discourages people from um, from placing forward orders and, you know, planning ahead. If you have any comments or questions about how international trade is impacting your work and your sector of the wood products industry, please comment on our Facebook or you can email me at Eileen, E-I-L-E-E-N, at northernlogger.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>